welcome to the Piper Podcast. I'm Mary Nightingale. On How I Grew My Brand, we meet successful founders and business leaders to get an insight into how they did it, what they're proudest of, and what they might prefer to forget as they battle to become a brand legend, with the key inflection points they navigated along the way, which Piper's identified as 71770, the stages in a brand's journey where it has to pivot and adapt to survive and thrive. Today we're entering the world of fashion as I talk to Adam Brown, founder of holiday and resort wear brand Allabar Brown, purveyors of poolside style. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for asking me. It's very nice to meet you. So just before we talk about your story, where are you in this 7-1770 We're heading towards the 70. So in the last couple of years, we're not quite there, but we've, we've way past the 17. And heading up, I'd hope in the next two years we'll get to the 70. Okay, in terms of turnover? Yeah. Okay. So describe for anyone who doesn't know what All Bar Brown does. Who are you? What do you do? So All Bar Brown started with a product. It started with one with a pair of swim shorts. And out of that, with no real sort of, I suppose, story or any particular grand idea behind it. But out of that pair of shorts, a brand has taken shape over the last 15 years. And I think the the fact it's swim shorts, the fact it's obviously about holidays, the fact it's about people travelling and having a good time. So that's really defined what All of Our Brown became. We've become a experience-led brand that makes products. We make clothes um, for sunshine, travel, happiness and good time. So feel-good clothes. Absolutely, in yeah. You, you say it didn't come from a grand idea, but there must have been some inspiration w- way back at the beginning. Can, can you remember what the dream was? It was more of a personal thing. It wasn't that I wanted to be a fashion designer, or I wanted to be an inventor, or I wanted to have a big business or anything like that. It really came out of need from a personally a point in my life. You know, I'd, be, I'd been through a couple of careers and I hadn't found the thing that was, I've, I'd run out of money. I'd, I hadn't found the thing that was making me happy, you know, all that, that sort of stage. So, and there was a particular mo- moment when I had this idea for a pair of shorts. and But that was the founding moment of, you know, when I started the brand. You said you had done a couple of things that hadn't worked out particularly. Yeah, so, what, what did you try? Well, I went to art college and I went to Oxford Poly and then I became, I ended up working in a state agent. So that was horrific. And then I ended up in the voluntary sector. So I was working within HIV prisons and children's charities for about eight or nine years, doing major donor and capital appeal sort of fundraising and also working on contracting um, with regional and local health authorities. And then I got down to final two for a job I didn't want went back to college, I studied photography, and I worked as a portrait photographer for um, about seven years. And again, you know, when I say I hadn't found it, I was photographing people's kittens in their dining room and dogs and babies. And it just wasn't, I was never going to get the advertising jobs. My friends' careers were all pushing ahead. And I was 40, a bit a slight, rather sort of aimless. Yeah. And so you set your heart on a pair of Swimming trunks. What it, were you not finding in it, existence? It was swimming not. Trunks? It really wasn't that. It was. It was the fact that I had to go. And, I was at a hotel in India, and I had to go and change for lunch. So I went to. I went to. The, I was staying at this hotel. I went to have lunch. They asked if I could go and change. I was wearing my swim shorts, and it was lying on the sun lounge, just pushing the words. I don't want a swim short. I want a short I could swim in. That was it. And then I did some. I came back from the holiday. I did some market research, which fundamentally was just shopping, having a look round. And I did, uh, you know, I was looking for ideas. I was looking for something to do. I wanted to be interested. I like clothes. I buy too much. You know, I'm one of those. I have a very strong opinion on 
you know, fabric, on cut, on colour, on composition. I'm fundamentally reasonably sort of a creative and inverted commas type person. I had a product in mind. I had no idea how I was going to launch it. I had li- even less idea how I was going to sell it. Um, I did a one-week drawing course at Central St. Martin's. I did a three-day start your own fashion business course at Portobello Business Centre for 60 quid. And that was really how I started. So um, it came more from me wanting to do something with my life, make something, create something, rather than I'm a fabulous fashion designer and I want to make clothes. But did you regard yourself as an entrepreneur? Never. No, no. Well, maybe, because when I did the... When I was doing the fundraising, I'd, you'd have to be given a target and you'd have to go and raise the money. So I suppose in that sense, you had to have sort of entrepreneurial skills. So I'd have to go and put a committee together or find the right people to build the children's centre or whatever the project, that particular project was. But um, so from that, you had, that was a startup mentality, if you like. Mm. And how did you actually launch? So you had the idea, you had this literally vision mm. for, for a pair of shorts you could swim in. Yeah. How did you go to the next stage? I drew, I did my one-week drawing course. I drew it on a piece of paper. I even enrolled on a pattern-cutting course where I lasted about 10 minutes. I just thought, I'm, ne- that's, I'm never going to be able to do this. And it was really just um, asking questions and asking people. And there are a lot of people out there who are very helpful. And I think really uh, finding a factory was the, clearly the first thing. And I went to about eight or nine factories. I found one in North London, weirdly, in Seven Sisters. And... It was nothing more, there's nothing complicated to what I did. You know, getting, I went through about eight samples to get a pair of shorts that I thought was what I had in mind. I made a thousand of them. It was one style of short in four lengths. And I put the boxes in a storage unit in Fulham Broadway and I started selling. And that's How did you sell them initially? Well, my partner had a PR company. And so in those days, print PR really worked and also because through the photography I had worked with people in magazines so they very kindly you know did the launch story and or placed the, on a shopping page and things like that. And what year are we talking about here? So the idea was in 2005 and I launched it actually in January 2007. Was it a struggle to get it started? It depends how you define, I go back to the, a lot of my stuff is how you define things and really I was just I, I set myself targets of selling two or three pairs of shorts a day. I had a database of 600 people your friends tend to be very kind. Everyone sort of bought... Your friends bought a pair. I sold a hundred, couple of hundred reasonably easily. I did £50,000 in my first year. So that's sort of... Um, it, it's reason, It's not so difficult. The fact there was only one product, it wasn't a huge collection. I had one material base. I had one side fastener. I had one factory. That simplifies everything. I had one point of sale, the website. So that it, that wasn't a struggle. You know, once you start adding in wholesale, once you start putting in T-shirts and polos and you start you know, even thinking about having your own store, then it starts getting complicated. But the actual launch is not the problem. It's the year two. You know, it's the second season or the third season. Keep maintaining the momentum. But it was just you to begin with. Well, it was my idea. A friend of mine, uh, a woman called Julia simpson Olabar, which is where the name comes from, we got together. Uh, I, I've sold in the idea to her. Luckily, she was at a point where she, well, she was a she had a mother of three kids and she wasn't in a job, so she had some time and we sort of got it to launch. So it was the two of us, and that was for the first year, 18 months. Then Julia very quickly, you know, for obvious reasons, it wasn't the life for her, and very amicably she's, you know, she retained shares right up until when we sold it. Mm. When did you start to get in other people? Because, you know, that's always a very difficult point, yeah. isn't it? When it's just you or just you and your co-founder or whatever. Oh, I loved that phase. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't responsible to anyone. That was 
in, in retrospect, probably didn't feel it at the time, did it? No. Quite challenging at the time. But but explain to me the journey then, becoming bigger, taking on yeah, so more people. The first member of staff was somebody literally in office help. Our warehouse was in a part of the office, so if we're in a small studio at the moment, but on if you imagine one side of the wall here was boxes. And we'd go, if an order, website order came in, we were going to pick and pack and... Um, steam the shorts, put them in a box, go and stand in the queue at the post office. It was no, it was as simple as that. So the first person was someone to come and help with that. But that was it for the first three years. It was me and them, and then I think an occasional help to sort of come and if we had when we got a wholesale account to come and pack that order, do the paperwork, to be able to do the declaration for duties and things like that. Once we got into wholesale account, when I got into Selfridges in. Um, 2009, 2010, then once you start having volume and you start seeing footfall and you start having to manage stock and things like that, then it becomes more complicated. So Selfridges cleaned us out, which was a good problem to have. Um, but and I had was no... Was it just swim shorts still at this stage? Oh, for three years, it was just swim shorts. Okay. So I had one style. This is one of the messages that I try and to anyone who's starting their business. People come and say, I've got a new collection. I've got a whole new range. And my lesson is I definitely... It definitely helped me, the fact that I had one pro- one product and I have a hero product, which um, OB is now known for. You know, that stood the test of time. And I think rather than just being a generalist at something, in this today's world, something that helped us was this thing of having one hero product that could evolve in many different ways. So the T-shirts and polos started in 2010, and it was literally one T-shirt, one polo, uh, two polos, a toweling one and a PK, and a long sleeve cotton shirt. And there was something about that simplicity that, enables you to get off the ground without having masses of people around you, without overcomplicating things. You always knew what you were good at, it seems to me. You had, you had the vision. Were yeah. you, how easy was it for you to bring in people to help you and how difficult did you find it to, to delegate to actually release your grip? Delegate is one thing. I don't enjoy delegating. I'm one of those horrible macro people. I like doing everything. But I have, I've never had a problem asking for help. I suppose that comes from sort of insecurities and, you know, lack of confidence in other things, other areas. But I think I don't need to have control. I'm useless at numbers. I'm useless at IT. I'm, there's no point in not putting anything, oh, I don't know, I use this example of warehousing or technology. It's pointless. The thing I think I've done well is I've brought the right people in, whether it's a finance person, whether it's somebody to help with the website, whether it's, you know, whatever. And... That's. It wasn't a difficult jump for me to bring people close because I was. I'm naturally reasonably insecure, and I know I'm not good at numbers. You know. Yeah. Um. Let's just park that for the moment, and and we'll we'll continue with the journey of the the brand mm. in a minute. But I just want to explore those insecurities. Mm. You say you you have lots of insecurities. Mm. Tell me about your childhood. Where were you brought up? So I was born in Malaya. My parents moved from Malaysia, went to Hong Kong, then to Japan. So for the first sort of six, seven years we were, we were there, my parents then split up and I came back to the UK with my sister and my mother. Um, and we ended up, really my grandmother became my sole, my carer, if you like, my parent. And it was, it was, you know, slightly strange. I never excelled at school, but that's fine. I had a great time at school. I did enjoy school and I made friends and I, all that, but I wasn't a... I was never somebody who was going to go on to a, very, a top-ranking university or anything like that. Mm, you, you, you say you have insecurities. What, uh, 
Oh, of course. Yeah, riddle. I mean, we all have them, yeah. right? So uh, yeah. what, what, what makes you insecure? You have this huge success under your belt. I'm wondering yeah, whether no, that no, helps no, now. But... Oh, categorically, yeah, without a doubt. You know, I started all of my brand with a need of wanting to create something, of wanting to say I could do something. I enjoyed sport, but I wasn't the kid who was picked first to go into the team. I think I, you know, I won the football improvement cup at school. That was my most celebrated moment. Well done. Yeah. I, well done. I scored yeah. a goal. Everyone was. Everyone. More, I don't know who was more surprised, but, <laughs> but you know, it, was, it wasn't. You know, things weren't bad. I just wasn't the most. I wasn't the most confident. One of the bits I've really enjoyed about all of our brand is seeing me sort of unfold or evolve. You know, as the brand got better or bigger. Um, Successful. It feels good, yeah. right? No, it does feel good. Def- quite definitely. But I think there's. For it to feel good, you've got to define your success and you've got, you've got to reach that success. What is success? You know, I had rows, I had blazing rows with people who thought I was mad when I sold it. And I said, no, I've reached my success. I've done what I wanted to do. That was what the, the goal I wanted to reach. Mm. Um, so it's how you define things. Mm. How do you define success? Did you want to earn money? Is money important to you? Yeah, definitely. All of our brands started at a point when I was, very, I didn't have money when I was racked up with debt. I couldn't see how my career was going to unfold. I couldn't see what the future looked like, all the rest of it. Money was definitely a thing. But more importantly, was wanting to just get up in the morning. You know, it really genuinely was that thing of, I want to be interested in what I do. I want to get up and be excited. I want to go and look at things and do things and make things. And it, that was far more the thing, you know, whereas before with the photography, it was... Um, yeah, you know, the jobs just weren't that interesting. They weren't giving me any sort of creative fulfillment. It, I, it was, wasn't what I, anything that would make me happy. So my definition of success, of course, there was a monetary amount, but there was what do I, what am I doing in the morning? And that's still how I, I judge, you know, as I go, as what my role is going forward with OB. Mm, and, and to do something you feel proud of, I yeah. suppose. No, I think, yes, on every level. Okay, so let's go back to the journey of mm. of, of this brand. And Piper talks about building brand mm. legends, you know. And and at the heart of this thing is the importance of brands to stay resolutely mm. to their purpose. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about the purpose of all of our brand. The thing about a brand in the early days, and one of the th- going back to when it was just me for when Julia, and then fundamentally just me for the first few years. A brand is a, has, is a living, breathing thing, and it's lived by, defined by a set of values and a DNA and culture and all the rest of it. And the, one of the benefits of having starting a business by yourself is that there's only one, that can only come from one place, so it has to come from me. You know, I'm not trying to create something because I made every decision and I made every image choice or product choice or how something was worded or how we did customer service or whatever it is. As the brand evolves those initial roots start shaping as the thing grows. Um, we very much sort of flailed around. You know, we knew we were about holidays and we knew we had lots of sort of, we had certain types of imagery and certain types of messaging and it all felt very good, but it didn't, didn't really mature that much. When we launched our Instagram, for example, we'd opened a shop in Covent Garden. And I remember infamous moments of suddenly pictures of empty restaurants in around Covent Garden would appear on our Instagram feed and the, the explanation was oh we've got a shop in Covent Garden I said it's an empty restaurant there's nobody there nobody's having a good time you know we're about fun we're about sunshine we're about having a good time we're about you know going on holiday we're about friends and family and memories and all those laughter and dancing and all those sort of things it's very easy for a brand to go wrong unless you start defining what your purpose is we went through quite a process 
of really trying to define what was the purpose of all of our brand. And it isn't to make swim shorts. Our purpose is not to make T-shirts and polos. You know, it really helped frame what the brand is about for everyone in the business. When you start saying we encourage, excite and enable everyone to holiday better, whether that's through clothes, whether that's through the content we produce, whether it's through the marketing, whether it's through, you know, the experience you have in stores on, on every level, you know. And I think the words holiday better before we had that is, oh, we make swim shorts and T-shirts. But that doesn't mean anything. It's just product. And the last thing anyone needs now is new product. Once you define a purpose, it sort of takes the lid off and enables opportunity to happen for the brand. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I had said our purpose was tailored swim shorts, in 10 years' time, we'd still be making tailored swim shorts. If I say our purpose is to encourage people to holiday better, then whether it's travel recommendations, whether it's in our stores, oh, you're going to Saint-Tropez, go and see these places, go to this restaurant, could be good. You know, from the people in the store, as well as giving them the product that's been sourced and made well, products that will make their holidays better. And make them feel that what? summer feeling. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't want to only have that during holidays, though, do you? I mean, the, ideally, you want people to have that summer feeling, that feeling good, yeah. I suppose, all the time. Yeah. And but it's I, part of that as well? Um, we made the mistakes of introducing words like everyday and essential and things like that into our vocabulary, and it just doesn't work. We have to be, yeah, we're, we're, that's not what we're about. But you said it took you a while yes, to identify that. And did absolutely. you do that then with a, with, with a brand team or was that still something well, that's happening? Well, I mean, it was initially, you definitely hit a point when you think you've got, to, you've got to start refining who you are. You've got to start understanding what you want to be. And so it was a group, two or three of us, including Piper, were on, on the part of that group. Piper invested in 2013. Yeah, exactly. So part of a couple of years after that, yeah, we sort of, we had the words feel summer, but it wasn't enough of uh, a purpose. Yeah. So mm. the next stage was a group of us and we worked, worked with an outside facilitator. It was a six month process. It's all, it's hidden away. It's buried away. If it's not at the surface, if you don't bring it to the surface, I'll bet you your purpose or your values, or DNA, everything. It's all in there. It just has to be expressed. And the, the, the rather cathartic process of bringing this stuff out helps the whole business yeah. and helps your customers and helps everyone understand who you are, what you're trying to do. You talk about the imagery that inspired you. Mm. And, and there's this photographer called Slim Ahrens. Yeah. What was this world that you were wanting to tap into? Slim Ahrens was a, a photographer from the 1960s, onwards. He was the original celebrity photographer. So he photographed the rich and the famous, um, beautiful people doing fabulous things in wonderful places. There's a, there's a glamour, there's a romance, there's an escapist nature. Of course, they're visually beautiful things. And we put them onto our shorts. And we managed to get them to do 360 degrees. And they got the print going into the pocket and they became beautiful things. And I love this idea of doing additions and collecting and numbering them and all that sort of thing. Since that, our bulldog shorts have become more like a canvas where we start, whether it's a photographer, whether it's an artist, whether it's an illustrator, a graphic designer, even we did a tattoo artist where we ta embroidered tattoos onto the shorts. They've become a way for us to do our storytelling. We can be far more um, bespoke, far more curated, far, do limited editions you know, through our photography, but it all started with the Slim Aaron's photography. Mm, and, of course, James Bond. Yeah, well, that was a lucky moment. Um, that was totally unplanned. 
And with Skyfall, we had a blink and you miss it moment, but it was a fundamental moment that showed that the impact that a globally known franchise, you know, name can impact a business. It felt right. There's something about Bond that always felt right for all of our brand. You know, the pictures of Sean Connery and Roger Moore on, on I think, probably on any menswear mood board at some point. So it seemed quite, once that picture came out and we were in Skyfall, it seemed very natural to try and keep the relationship going. And so you, you launched a, a James Bond Yeah, we, 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 we inspired by um, vintage Bond styles and taking the reference points of the fabric, fabulous fabrics or the scenes from particular films. And yeah, But toweling is a fundamental fabric, is a core fabric for all of our brown, the toweling onesie. You know, the toweling onesie, now that is... That's a difficult garment to wear. It's a tricky look. There's it no, is. There's no way around it. It's a tricky look, but it works. And you sell. We've made them several times, and they always sell out. Really. Really. And and uh, yeah. Okay. And but I, I I I'm worried that some people might think they can wear a toweling onesie and possibly not. But who are we to judge? Absolutely. That's yeah. exactly it. On any level. You're listening to the Piper Podcast, and I'm talking to Adam Brown, founder of All of Our Brown. Piper focuses really on understanding what makes a particular brand better mm. and different. Mm. What makes all of our brand better and different? I think there's a thing about personality. The amount that we've benefited from it being about one product, one person, has meant clarity of message and clarity of vision. We had a particular take on imagery. We had a particular take on the fit of our shorts. We very much we gave a five-year guarantee right from the very beginning, and it also starts instilling messages into sort of customer service you know when a customer comes in and they start complaining about something doesn't matter just replace just they need it's a longer term relationship i think i'd rather a pair of shorts didn't let you down but i'd far more interested in the longer term relationship with the customer which i think going back to your question i think sets us apart from other people out there not of course everyone would say that but i we genuinely try and instill it Having a true personality, i.e. it came from me, it came from one person, okay, that's, that's who it is. So people could understand it. They may not like it. But the last thing you want to be is stuck at a party with somebody who's average. You know, the word average or lukewarm or okay isn't that interesting. You know, you're, in, you're interested in characters. And many brands out there, I find, are rather, you know, I think it can, you can become quite sort of anemic, a little bit hygienic and a little bit... Meh. For me, for me, you know, and I think I would rather have a personality and people didn't particularly like what we were doing rather than trying to appeal to everyone. You know, whether it's around colour of product, the fit of the make, the way we try to build relationships with customers, imagery, messaging, it's got to have some sort of personality. Mm. I'm going to talk to you more about that in a minute. But let me take you back to the 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 journey. You talked about getting into selfridges mm. as your as your first mm. kind of you know step into the the bigger time mm. if you like piper got involved in 2013 mm. so explain about that transition and what were the challenges of getting bigger and what were the sort of step changes along that stage so managing change or managing growth so money was always money's always a problem you know i had 40,000 pounds when i started ob and I think it took about 250 to sort of really thinking, OK, we can get going here. So that's a significant amount of money. The biggest challenge, I would say, is sort of bringing in some sort of financial control. And we'd had an angel investor before Piper uh, came on, um, and they had been incredibly useful 
to me personally and to the, and obviously to the brand. And they brought in sort of financial control. And they also brought in some elements of process, elements of sort of reporting and margin. You know, we, we thought we had margin actually once you really dug down and you built in things like levels of return from wholesale customers, then the margin probably wasn't good. So just cash flow was, is always a nightmare when you're, when you're growing at that, at that speed, at that level. And you said um, yourself you don't like numbers. No, don't I don't like numbers. numbers. No, I don't. And luckily, these, the angel investor, and it was it was actually a moment with a carry bag and a full of receipts, and I hadn't even looked at it, and just here you are. And we were doing about sort of £400,000 of sales, and I just couldn't. I just I had a sort of handwritten sheet. I think finding the right investors, the only thing I've done well is putting the right people around me, whether it's in the team at OB uh, or whether it's investors, mm. and finding good advice. That's the only big success I think the thing I've done well. How difficult was it to find the right investor? So the angel investor was somebody who I just targeted and, and why did you target him? He was recommended to me as investing in businesses at this well most probably about a step ahead of us. Yeah. Um, also, but so you, you like the idea of his expertise? His I liked experience? his expertise I liked, I liked the way he did things. With investors in that courtship phase everyone's nice <laughs> you get on with everyone but it's not about that it's about when things go wrong when you want help how are they going to react? That's when the things come, come unstuck. Anyway, it was a good relationship and he stayed right through. And when Piper got involved, we were just step, making our first steps into the US. And your turnover was what at that stage? Oh, God, I think we were about, oh, about was, seven. Yeah. But weirdly, you know, I had a better offer on the table. I, I walked away and I actually I phoned up Peter and I went in to see him. Who's, at, who's one of the at Piper? Piper, at Piper. Yeah. And it was probably the best decision I've ever made because I think if I hadn't made that decision... Goodness knows what have happened because in any brand there are rocky moments and how do the investors react at those points and those are the moments you need support. What is OB's tone of voice? How do you talk to your customers? Who is your customer? Our customer, I'm not going to be able to tell you an age. I'm not going to tell you uh, where they live. You know, I don't believe, we've just been around that block so many times thinking, oh, they're 40, they live in London, they're blah, blah, blah. And it's not. It's just somebody who has a certain approach on life, I think. It's a, it's a man who has a certain attitude or a certain aspiration to live his life a certain way. Your marketing material mm. is so visual. It's so beautiful, mm. isn't it? Beautiful young men, a couple of beautiful older men as well, yeah. I notice now. Um, and, you know, they're all chiseled and they've got great abs. And no. They fabulous. They, in the adverts, <laughs> they do. They, you know, they look fabulous in right. the product. And I'm just wondering... You know, we all have that moment when we try on uh, swimwear, yeah. <laughs> uh, either at home or in a shop, and uh, we don't quite look like the ads. Yeah. And I, ju- I just wonder how much of a sort of tension is that in, in, in terms of your product and the reality of who wears your product. Um, I, I think there was a de- there was a definitely a moment when an all of our brand model looked a certain way. We're, there are many different types of men who now appear in our in our imagery and how we present ourselves. I'm conscious of, you know, I'm a man, I'm 56. I know when I have to take my clothes off, I have to put a pair of shorts on. <laughs> it's not like it was when I was 20. The whole point of the tailored short is that a man of any shape looks better because he, it's tailored and as he'd look good in a tailored suit. I think there are many different types of men who we should be bringing into the all of our brown world. And as you know, we're laying out a vision for what the brand should be over the next 15 years, we've got a whole vision mapped out. And so I think that's a really interesting and exciting opportunity for the brand. You know, I think there are many versions of the word man, men, 
we can be including. Mm. The stuff I've read about when you started out, you were quite forensic yeah. in your examination of, of each sale that you did. I, yeah. I, is it true that you, you looked on a map to try and work out where they lived? Yeah. One of the biggest fights I had with our, uh, with our IT team is when they wanted to stop the order confirmations coming through to my desktop because I wanted to see every order and I wanted to see what that person had ordered and what they'd ordered previously because I could see whether, gosh, they're just buying T-shirts. They're only, why are they only buying polos? And I could ring them up and say, can you try our shorts? What, did you, you honestly yes, do that? No, I did it for years. <laughs> I wanted to find out why. Was yeah. it the imagery? Was it the, was it the fit? Had you tried it? Did you, was it the weight? Was it the price? You know, all this sort of thing. And I think it's, and you build relationships. You used to um, put a handwritten for, note, didn't you, in with each, uh, each sale? Yeah, so I used to, and we still get a list every Monday of, customers who I should approach and I do that every week it's a discipline that I have and I will be sent sent this list and I will email them and say I'm just checking it give me I know you went into x store or you bought the website can you give me some feedback on what you bought is there anything we can do and I've I've ended up having lunch with these people mm. and and when you see in the daily mail David Cameron uh, on the beach in a mm. pair of your shorts do, is that celebration or does a little party well, think oh you know, the messaging wasn't exactly you know, <laughs> the best messaging in the world. But we had more traffic to our website that day than we have ever, ever had. So it wasn't such a bad day. <laughs> but, you know, if Daniel Craig is pictured in a pair of the same shorts, it might be perhaps a cause of a greater well, celebration. Was. Well, there you are. <laughs> and I don't mind who it is. I genuinely, it doesn't worry me. In the early days, we had this thing called OBs around the world, which is a hashtag. And for me, the greatest joy was actually seeing the customers wanting to post pictures of them on holiday and for them to actually associate, want to associate that holiday or that moment with their wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, child, whatever it was, with all of our brown. And the fact they thought of tagging all of our brown at that moment when they're jumping off the boat or they're having a snog or they're getting engaged or whatever, I think that, that was the bit that gave me the real kick. You know, having a very personal moment somewhere gorgeous and they're thinking about a company they're thinking about the brand they're wearing that's the most exciting thing does it feel like a community of ob it doesn't feel fans? yeah there's communities are really is a, is a strange word there's definitely on beaches i've been in queues at, in bars or at restaurants and people notice your shorts there's a recognition and i i love I per, of course i do you know i started yeah, of course. It, so but they I like that element. It's a very recognisable thing, that side fastener. Um, and, and would you ever, and have you, you know, tapped someone on the shoulder in a bar and said... Absolutely never. My name Not is... In a really? No, never. <laughs> no. What about customer research? Do you do that in a formal sense? Um, we have an annual survey every year, which has about 40, 40 questions on it, which I'm always absolutely speechless that people take that, that much time to read and answer the questions. We get a few thousand replies to that every year, which always stuns me. We ask detailed questions about products and about services and about stores and all that sort of thing. So we get a lot of information from that. I do my uh, direct research where I talk to customers on a regular basis um, and have very detailed conversations with them. We've done the usual behind the wind, behind the screens, uh, listening to older, younger customers about specific things and um, obviously there's a lot of online stuff new ways that you can start doing research which we're going to be exploring next year mm. it's incredibly valuable and you have to listen but you have to also be aware of what's right for the for the brand and for the, for the company as well mm. 
one thing all your customers have to have, I, I suppose, is a certain amount of money, mm. and you want to you know, get as wide a range of people mm. wearing OB products <clears throat> as possible. But they are the, the price point is is quite high, isn't it? And getting higher, actually. Yeah, I've always been. It's get it's, everything's getting higher at the moment. Yeah, you know, there's no question. You know, raw materials, transport, Brexit, all these things have just have had an impact on on pricing. Uh, we learned obviously hard lessons in the early days around margin, and I think now we've but there's no way around. There's no way around that. Right from day one, we were always considered expensive, but I'm a firm believer in. You know, buy cheap, buy twice. I believe in quality. I don't want. I've never aspired to buy anything that won't last. Uh, there are sixty elements that go into making each pair of shorts. We give a five-year guarantee. You know, there's a fundamental quality there. There also, when you start building in the whole sustainability thing and you know, resourcing and trying to do things properly and things like that, they're all you need to do. It's the right thing to do. You have to do it. But there is additional cost there. But I've been fascinated at the customers who come into OB. So whether it's the younger guys, and it's very much the badge of honour, or the I'm going on this holiday with my group of friends. We're renting a villa in Ibiza or Mykonos or wherever it is for the first time, and they come in and they'll buy a pair of shorts. Right up to the the odd person who buys it for their three homes and their boat and set wardrobes every season. Love them, couldn't love them more. But I think for me, it's how people use all of our brand. The person who drops it into all of their homes versus the guy who's, you know, it's a real treat to buy a pair of shorts. I just love the fact that this person's thinking we've created something that somebody thinks has a value and is considered a treat and something special. And, and what about sustainability? Because the fashion business is, you know, famously wasteful yeah. and, and, and so on. And I think we're as you say, increasingly aware of that. Mm. And I think it is something that is becoming more central to the, the purpose of, yeah. of, of businesses, isn't it? How, how do you think about sustainability? There's no way around it. To wear our product, you have to travel. To wear our product, you're in the ocean, you're in water. We are impacting the environment. You know, we can encourage our customers to holiday in a different way, but we can also provide them with the product that has been sourced and made sensibly so when we put the purpose document the framing up the brand sustainability has for years been a fundamental part of who all of our brand is it has taken about three years to actually get to a point where we feel we're proud of what we're doing about two years ago we did a whole audit of the business of what our carbon footprint was for the for the actual business part of it uh, we now have you know targets in place around all our fabric bases around how we get product around. We can tell you the carbon footprint of every T-shirt or jumper and there's a little green foot icon and you click on that and it'll tell you the carbon footprint of that product. And then we've got targets in place for the next couple of years to um, you know, reduce the amount of carbon that we're producing and we do an offsetting programme with sea trees. Mm -hmm. um, for us, it, we just had to do it because we're part of the... you know. To wear our product, we're contributing to the problem. But I do believe in the. I believe holidays are fundamental to people's well-being and life mm -hmm. and all that. If you if brands are ignoring it uh, and companies are ignoring it, it's it's just stupid. But it did take a long time to actually get ourselves to a point where we felt like we could start communicating it. And what I, the real thing I think for us is that we we shouldn't build the brand on sustainability. It's just something we do. It's good housekeeping. If you don't do it, it's wrong. 
And so we're, n- we're never going to be a brand that's going to go out there and start flag waving the flag, but it's just there and it's part of the fight, like the five-year guarantee, the quality, the trust, the person who we are. And, and, and what about who's actually making your shorts? Is that is that something that's on yes, your radar fact, as well? The, you know, yeah, all the ethical, yeah. the important all the working conditions, stuff. salaries, employment, workers' rights. Absolutely, every factor is che- checked out. Whole audits are done. All of our the whole of our um, operations. Okay, you were with Piper for five years. Yeah. Or Piper were with you. Piper were with us for five years. <laughs> for five years, <laughs> and and then what happened to anyone who doesn't know? Um, well, we uh, we sold the business, and Chanel came forward. Chanel had been I'd been introduced to somebody at actually the women's swimmer at Erez at a party in Paris, and they um, thought it would be interesting for us to meet Chanel. Um, I met Bruno Pavlovsky in Paris. We had uh, a meeting five year, you know five years previously, and that was really it. And we just maintained a a super light, friendly. This is what we're up to type of conversation. And then when we decided we were going to try and do something with the business, um, we got in, we got in touch and said that we're going to go down this process if you're interested. That's another huge step change, isn't it? Yeah. You you you've you've had Piper on board for five years. Mm. To to then team up with Chanel is a massive change, not necessarily of direction, but of yeah. scale. Yeah, I I wonder how 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 much of a challenge that was for you personally because again it's a you know it's it's, it's it another was, transformation it, it isn't just, it just again it goes back to this thing of defining your success if i define my success as a super yacht in a private plane i failed you know it's not that what i all i w- wanted from this i wanted to keep on doing something that i enjoy and i want somebody who's going to look after all of our brand i want you know this thing all of our brand that has covered with values and DNA and cultural has become, you know, it's like a living person. I want this it's person. It's a baby. Come I on, it's this. your it's It is. Your, it sounds like it's, it's, a proper, it's a proper cliche, but it is. Yeah, you know, it it's is. absolutely true. So when you do these processes, you meet an awful lot of people and you sit in meetings with a lot of people. And again, I go to, I'm relatively simple in this way. I look at them and I think, how are you going to be when things go tough? What are you going to want to do with this thing? Is it a product-led thing that you just want to drive it through? Or do you want to make something? And Chanel... As we know, you know, are master brand builders and have been hugely successful at what they're doing. And I think also it's just the, the personalities involved. You know, we, we got on and I trusted them and the, they, I felt like they would support us. So what would be your advice when, when you're trying to establish a relationship with a potential investor like, like Chanel? Um, I think give it time. If you're thinking of getting investment, if you're thinking of selling a business, I would recommend... The way I did it, the parties who were involved are people who I'd known for the three, four, even Chanel, five years previously. So you've got to know them over a number of years rather than going through that thing of, okay, we want to raise X amount and people come who you've never met before, who you don't know. An investor or somebody who owns a business is the most important relationship you're going to have. You know, that is absolutely no question. Try and do everything you can to understand how they tick how they operate, what their priorities are, what their long-term vision for the brand might be, what they might do if things went wrong. You know, try and, you can never have it 100%, but I think I'd advise anyone who's doing getting investors is start planning for it years before. Just, just to return to you then, where, where are you? Where is Adam Brown now? What's your role within the business? What's the work-life balance? Well, I'm glamorously called creative director. I think I'm very much a sort of founder role. Anything 
the customer sees, touches, smells, wears, reads, I want to be involved in. Whether that's product, whether that's the marketing bit, whether it's customer service, whether it's the in-store experience. We've got a whole band of work around customer relationships going on, which I think is the most important piece of work we're probably doing for the brand going forward to build long-term relationships. Um, but anything like that I'm involved in. There's no point in putting me in a warehousing meeting or a operations meeting. You're not going to get any sense out of me there. So when you look back at your journey, how much of it was down to you? How much of it was down to timing? How much of it was down to luck? Well, all of it was down to me and the fact that I came, came up with the idea. You know, but it's very easy to have an idea and it's very easy to sort of get things to launch. But maintaining it and keeping that thing going and then bringing it to life um, is undoubtedly due to other people. But I do believe a founder or a creative person like myself, and I look at the other brands that sort of operate in our world, how do you keep that personality? How do you keep that distinction? How do you stand out from the crowd? Then I think I play a role in, in that and giving some sort of shining a torch as to what the future looks like rather than just carrying, oh, we'll make another PK polo shirt. Let's make another toweling. because that, that colour sold last year. Let's do that again, that type of approach. But as you get bigger and you start thinking about going into the Far East, how do you break into America? That requires way more people than me, and I would not be able to do that at all without the wider team. And the, the might of Chanel behind you. How much difference has that made, do you think, to the success of the brand now? They're remarkably hands-off if we ask for support and help, whether it's around leases or legals or sustainability or things like that. There's a bank of expertise and information at their, at their fingertips that's readily available. If we ask for support and help, but we, we see them once a month, they've clearly invested in the brand. And I think definitely during COVID, the fact that, you know, all, all our salaries are paid throughout the whole of lockdown and their continued support, you know, I think speaks volumes as to a belief in what we're doing. So, but the expertise bit, you know, we're going into the, we're going into the Far East. We're starting starting that. We're re doing stuff in Australia. You know, they've got teams in place that can help with that. So, actually, getting retail stores. How does the balance work between online and actual physical retail? Well, stores we're about sixty five percent direct to consumer, of which um, about forty five percent of the business is online, and we've got about two hundred wholesale accounts. So it's about sort of forty five twenty. 30, 30. And what proportion of your sales are overseas? America was our biggest market for occasional odd months last year. So we're still, the UK is still our biggest market, but the US, you know, definitely next year will overtake. We're primarily the UK, US, Europe. We're not global. You know, we haven't started the Far East, we haven't started yet. South America yet. What were the challenges of expanding into the US market? The US is no different really from many territories but the obvious advantages were around language the time differences weren't so enormous the opportunity clearly huge australia and the us were the first places that we started trying to go into because you didn't have to, your customer service all your emails your marketing nothing had to be changed the website the language didn't have to, nothing had to change the complexities of trying to make anything work in america because just on a scale makes it difficult for us for a small business. We you know we broke America down into five places. It's just too so, so New York, New York, San LA. LA, Miami, you know, Florida, and San Francisco, 
in Dallas. Very quickly, I saw website orders coming in. You know, we had one page in USGQ, and I think it got £75,000 worth of sales in those days. And so we could see the, the product was relating to an American audience. We could see where the website orders were being delivered, and primarily it was to Miami and to East Hampton and to new addresses in New York. So we could see where, to play, where we should be sort of thinking about stores. But there's absolutely no doubt just the setting up of the U.S. A subsidiary or a company or however you want to structure it in the U.S., getting stores built, getting an office refurb, recruiting a team, having people available, you know, just employment law is completely different. And it just becomes, it's another one of these things that when you're a startup and your business is starting to grow and people always say, I've got to go to the US. Yes, you will go. You don't have to go now because it is massively distracting. It is hugely expensive. Um, it is time consuming. And had we maximised the opportunity that we had in the UK, but even in London, Probably not, but we were already going off into the US. It's all worked out fine, and we have stores, and we've got a team, and uh, the US will be our most successful territory. Um, but, you know, for businesses that are just starting out, I always get very nervous when they say, as I think Piper and people were, you know, whenever investors, any investors were when I used to go and say, we're off to Miami. <laughs> <laughs> to take you back to the 71770 scale, what what was the biggest change during the Piper years? Professionalising the business. When Piper invested, we were very much a sort of start-up, you know, £7 million business, you know, just on a operational, on a process, on a reporting, putting those structures into place that allow some sort of accountability and responsibility. Um, they were absolutely fundamental to driving that process and bring, helping us bring the right people in. And... Yeah, providing those stepping stones to enable future growth. And and in terms of personnel, were there lots of changes in personnel during that time? That has to be one of the most difficult things. You start off by yourself, you build a small team, it's normally about, about seven key people. You think, they think like you, they're going to be there for years and years. And there are layers with where, where points when change happens. And it was very painful when those people, you realise you're not the right business for them anymore and they are not the right person for the business anymore and it's an age it's it's a very true thing that is frequently said is you know that that change is painful seeing those people go or allowing them to go is is difficult by that stage there were obviously more of you on the team anyway and you you had a commercial director didn't you paul donahue who uh, who became ceo A couple of years before yeah. you sold to Chanel. Yeah. When did you realise, what made you realise that you needed a CEO? For me, the moments came around management of team. Sales were growing. We were sort of adding stores and we had ambitions for the website. But I didn't really have the ability to make those things become a reality. And I could see I couldn't. And whether you, when you start opening stores or you start trying, you have legal obligations around websites or technical obligations, you know, how to brief the people to make. I wasn't the person to lead those types of conversations. And Paul was originally recruited as commercial director. And, you know, as the business grew, Paul was uh, the obvious choice for it. And he's the person who has, you know, literally transformed the business. I provide a sort of story, I provide the narrative, I provide the product, I provide the sensibility of what it is. But without that foundation, without the, those structural, operational, functional, just the, and the sheer force of the power of what he's, his drive, 
you know, made made my dream, if you like, the, the visual, the vision sort of come alive. When you look back and, you, you know, here you are almost 15 years in now, what were the biggest mistakes you made? Um, the ones that stick in my mind are normally the mistakes we made when we were talking to customers. So the embarrassing content pieces, the embarrassing imagery, the the product I didn't think was particularly good. But they're comparatively weirdly sort of unimportant because probably the customer doesn't hasn't noticed them anyway. But rushing into trying to grow too fast. Um, we did women's wear too early. All of our brown definitely has a woman in their life. Women should be part of all of our brown's life. But us thinking that we could make women's wear just because we'd had waiting lists in the US for women to buy our shorts did not mean that we were experts in women's wear. When I meet people, they're always trying to do big collections. When I meet people, they're trying to go into countries too early. When I meet people, they're not realising they haven't even maximised the opportunity in what they set out to do already. We did a infamous piece of work with, I think it was with Experian a few years ago, and we'd reached less than 1% or something of the men who could buy a pair of all of our brown swim shorts. And that begs the question, why on earth are we doing T-shirts or polos? We've still got 99% of the people to reach to, to buy our swim shorts. You introduce new products or you try and do a new service or you go on to the next project to cover up the failings of what you've already done rather than resolving that. You need to take time. Mm. You are successful now. You have made this thing to be proud of. You presumably have made a decent amount of money out of it. What does that mean to you? Contentment. I mean, you feel content. You feel excited. You know, I think there's things you can do. You know, it, it offers... I'm, I'm very fortunate. Are you a yachts and private jet kind of guy? No, not at all. So what do you do? Well, I've got the house in Cornwall. And I go down there and I love the sea. I love the ocean. I love the cliffs. I love the dogs. I want to start travelling again. There are loads. I haven't seen icebergs. I'd like to do the Far East properly. I'd like to go into jungles. I'd like to, you know, I usually try, you know, I was always trying to do a sort of big expedition or trip a year and go to up mountains or go across prairies or go across deserts and things like that and I haven't been able to do that for a few years so I think hopefully I'll have some I'd like to find some time to do those sort of fantastic trips and see the world again And what advice would you give to other would-be founders out there? Uh, focus have a hero don't do anything too big allow people in ask questions change is good you know all this, all these sort of rather cliche lines but I see about two people a week at the moment where I sit down and have a coffee with them and invariably the themes that come up are the same issues and I can see them making the same mistakes that probably I did weirdly it's a lot of the conversations that Piper were probably having with me, with me in the early days oh it's so interesting talking to you Adam Brown thank you thank you very much <laughs>